Welcome to the Language for Leading podcast with the founder and CEO of the Business of Leading Incorporated, Julian Sturton. Since the early 1990s, Julian has equipped leaders from across the globe with an operating system and real-world set of tools that have improved relationships on all levels, and the work has meant real success in business and life for so many. Today's guest on the Language for Leading podcast is Dr. Lawrence Lustig, the Howard W. Smith Professor and Chair at the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, Columbus University Irving Medical Center in New York. Dr. Lustig has spent his illustrious career helping thousands of patients hear better, hearing a sense we should never take for granted. And on today's podcast, Julian and I will talk with Dr. Lustig about the intricacies of our sense of hearing and the profound impact this sense has on our lives. Julian? Yeah, Larry, Jordan and I have known each other and I must have been up to his studio, I should think, about 20 or more times, literally putting pretty much every part of my background onto some recording, correct, Jordan? That is correct. We know more about you than we might have wanted to, but uh, it's a discovery <laughs> that is quite elegant and quite exciting. Thank you. What's been interesting, to cut it short, is that... Uh, the way this language for leading has been put together is a reflection of the sort of the dastardly behavior of not only myself, but the dastardly behavior of everybody else I seem to have met around the world. So we've pulled all the resources, haven't we, John, to sort of put together. And of course, it's been an enormous opportunity to invite people such as yourself to partake in this podcast. As I mentioned to you on the phone, Larry, uh, one of the intentions is to gather the the interest from the audience because of course you're an expert you're a highly skilled human being in the area of audiology or otolaryngology correct which is why i've asked you and you you brightly picked today's topic which is uh hearing loss let, let me just turn it over to you larry all right well, I, I think a, I think a, a great place to start with hearing losses, uh, just to explore the wonder of the ear and how we hear. It's really a remarkable organ. I think a lot of people that end up going into otolaryngology or even my specific subspecialty, which is otology and neurootology, we sort of we fall in love with the ear. We fall in love with sort of the 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 amazing way that Mother Nature has fashioned this this unique organ. You know, you've got sound that starts in the outside world as vibrations, right, as waves, and those waves come down the ear canal. And it's very interesting that the process of that sound, processing of that sound starts even before the sound hits your eardrum. The shape of the outside of the ear and the shape of the ear canal preferentially amplifies those sounds that are approximately in our speech range. So already, even before any active processing of that signal coming into the brain occurs, we've got an amplification of normal speech sounds, which just, to me, is fascinating because it goes to the importance of human communication with each other. Then you've got the eardrum, that sound hits the eardrum, and, and it's a drum, it's a very thin membrane, and it vibrates, and those, those vibrations travel through the three middle ear bones, which many people learn in grade school as uh, the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup but we refer to as the malleus, the incus, and the stapes. And the, the whole point of the eardrum and those middle ear bones is to take sound and really amplify it uh, about 30-fold. And what that allows you to do is take sound in an air environment and transfer it to a fluid environment. Imagine, if you will, you're, 
you're sitting at the edge of a swimming pool and you're trying to talk to your friend who's swimming underneath the surface. They can't hear you because a majority of the sound that's coming out of your mouth is, is reflecting off that air-water interface. So the whole point of the eardrum and these middle ear bones are to amplify the sound to get you over that hump of that air-water interface. And now the sound signal, is, uh, which is again as waves, is now traveling through the inner ear fluids. And um, as we know from whales and dolphins, um, sound actually travels much more efficiently in water than it does in air. So you've set up a, you set up a traveling wave within the inner ear. And the inner ear is structured such that high frequency sounds will preferentially vibrate one end of the inner ear, what we call the cochlea, and low frequency sounds will vibrate the other end and everything in between. So sound gets parsed out along the inner ear in what we call a tonotopic fashion, basically low to high, very much like a piano keyboard. Um, and then at each location along the inner ear, we've got these tiny little cells called hair cells. And those hair cells move in response to that sound motion from the sound vibrations and transfers that sound as an electric impulse off to the brain. And that's basically how we hear. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of details in there that I'm leaving out, but basically that's really the whole point, right? We've got sound coming from the outside world, getting to the inner ear, being converted uh, to an electric signal, which goes to the brain. And because it's all that sound is parsed out in this kind of this, this low to high frequency arrangement, it gives us lots of opportunities to intervene. For example, when someone loses all their hearing, we can place a little wire into the inner ear, have little electrodes along that wire, and we know that if we send out a little electric impulse at one particular location of the inner ear, the brain is still going to perceive that as the sound it was intended to be perceived as. And that's why we can take someone, say, who's lost all of their hearing, give them a cochlear implant and recreate sound. Not, not perfectly, but good enough for them to understand speech and language and communication. Can I interject with something? Please do. You're a very, very, very knowledgeable person. I think not just at the academic level, but the whole scientific level. And then you've got the third leg, which is the application of all of those combinations, right? Which right. gives you a kind of a unique perspective other than, well, you went to college and you learned about the hearing machinery. But I was writing down the word history and the word also was the word learning. Do we just take everything for granted, Larry, when it comes to these particular parts of a sort of the, the neurological machinery where you've got the brain and then you've got the parts that make up the ear? Because I'm thinking about the word learning because I'm a, I'm a, a, a person who's learning things. I didn't understand teaching, which is why I dropped out of school. <laughs> So I had to learn, and I think I had to adjust my perception so that when I cut off my listening and hearing from my school teachers, because I was so brought up in a very, I don't know if you know this about me, Larry, I was brought up in a very dysfunctional situation. I was a scared child because of my background. So I think something happened when I was at this old school, founded by Henry VIII, 
And I was so terrified because I'd been hearing my mother and father yelling and fighting, and it never stopped. So I'm just wondering how interesting this is, because I think this isn't just a sort of a technical scientific dialogue. It's going to interest, possibly speaking, the audience as to where their perception is more than just hearing and listening and using what you're the, the, the master at, Larry, but how our perception is alternated and built into this hearing machinery. Because you've got neuroscience, you've got the physiological science, you've got all of these combined sciences, right, that keep the body and the mind and body fit and awake and conscious as far as the different perceptions. I don't know whether I've thrown too much at you, Larry, but I think you'll understand what I'm talking about because you're very broad-minded. You don't just sort of learn stuff in a test tube. You've got hundreds, maybe thousands of patients, right, who need to not just understand how to take care of themselves because the whole learning part of my business is it should have been called Jordan the language for learning rather than the language for leading. Let's not change the title of everything now. It's going to be a very <laughs> gruesome exactly. task. I, I can just jump on board and, and yeah. add to one thing and then we'll let Larry take it from here. I was thinking when you were describing the, the system of hearing that is part of the human experience, I was thinking about, um, not to get too philosophical or even religious, the grand design that usually take a look at the eye, you know, the, the perfect design for the perfect eye for the senses. But uh, I, I, the way you described it, you know, the, the way we're built to experience sound and experience hearing and understand it and then develop, as Julian said, a learning process is incredible, the way you describe it particularly. Like I said, I, th I think people who study the ear fall in love with the cochlea and sound processing. Um, but even to back off on that and sort of to, to play on what, what, what uh, Julian has been talking about. I mean, hearing is sort of fundamental to who we are as humans. Now, I, I want to be very careful here because there's there's a lot of people in the world that can't hear. There's the deaf you know, with a capital D community and they get along just fine without hearing. So um, for many people of the world, hearing is not an option. Uh, and uh, a non-hearing world is a way of life. And there's a, cult there's a rich culture uh, and community and language that works. I think for most of us who've grown up with hearing, it's important to us and it's fundamental to who we are. Think about think about the music that you have when you grew up. Think about you hear a song today and it brings you right back to grammar school, middle high school, yes. somebody you yes. dated in college, right? And it's it's it goes just to the core of who you are, very much like a smell might take you somewhere as well. So I think, you know, it's music, uh, sound is important. Hearing is important. Listening is important. And those aren't always the same three things, by the way. Well, when I was terrified as a youngster, the thing that was a large part of my saving grace was the Beatles music. And it had such an impact on the trauma. I don't know whether this has been part of your practice or your research, Larry. But I can actually remember every single Beatles song that's ever been recorded. In fact, by the time I was 13, I could actually remember every lyric from all the Beatles mm. songs because there was so much trauma. There was so much emotional damage that I was experiencing going on around me 
I had to find a way of escaping from that. Uh, I, Peter Drucken, I call it, he said, you developed a very sophisticated coping mechanism. I said, well, I think the Beatles had a lot to do yeah. with it, listening to the music. Well, I always think about, you know, art for the senses, right? You know, every one of our senses has an art form associated with it. For, for hearing, it's music, poetry, verbal communication. For vision, it you know, could be visual art, could be movies, right? Um, for smell, it's perfumes. For taste, it's, you know, amazing culinary creations. You know, for, t uh, for your vestibular sensation, we've got roller coasters, we've got fun rides, merry-go-round. So I always, I'm always fascinated by the fact that for every one of our senses, we have some type of artistic endeavor that's associated with it. There's always the question, and it's sometimes uh, asked at adult cocktail parties, if you were to seed one of your senses, which one could you yeah. or would you do without? And I've often thought that uh, hearing, uh, particularly for what it is that I do and Julian does and so many of us do professionally, hearing is so fundamental. Um, what What do you think about that? Is that a question that you ponder with patients even when you're dealing with patients? To, not that you ask that question, but do you think about that? What is this impact going to like you know i we've always you know everybody i think everybody thinks about that you know um I, I, if i had to choose i don't know what i'd choose i certainly would be unhappy without my vision i'd be unhappy without my hearing interestingly helen keller who lost both of them uh, was very famous for having said that when you lose your 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 vision you get separated from things but when you lose your hearing you get separated from people it wasn't an exact quote, but it's basically sort of what she was implying. And, and if you think about that, that really is true. Because language keeps you connected to people in a way that none of the other senses can do. Um, they're equally important, right? This is not this is not a race state. Which which one's better? Which one's worse? But I think it's what you value in this world. On the other hand, you have someone like Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison was nearly deaf, uh, and in fact, if you go to the Edison archives. And you look at the original wax cylinders that he used to create the first phonograph. Okay, here, talk about irony. Here's the guy that invented the phonograph, could, could barely hear. Um, he would put his teeth on the, on, the, uh, on the carriages, and as they turn those cylinders, he can actually hear. So it turns out he had good inner ear function, but he just had a lot of ear infections as a child. So... He couldn't actually hear, but when asked, it, it, I, I did a history project on him many years ago because we were exploring this, and he was he was he was told that there were some specialists in New York that could cure his hearing, and he said something to the effect of, "Why would I want to do that? Then I'd have to listen to people's idle chitter chatter." So there was someone who didn't value hearing, and he enjoyed his solitude and his ability to think about his invention. So there you go. Mm. Well, I think it's a very much to do with the different cultures as to how we hear and how we listen. Because when I grew up, you know, in a snobbish British culture, you were seen and not heard. And that was the sort of the order of the day, you see. So I did the opposite. You see, I just got very loud. <laughs> <laughs> you succeeded at that. You know, I was thinking when you mentioned Edison and his issues and Helen Keller, the most obvious uh, uh, classical composer of this type would be Beethoven, right? Who was able to compose some of the world's greatest melodies. That's correct. You know, people hypothesize on the kind of hearing loss he's had. He's had. And in fact, there's been scientific papers written about this. 
uh, again, he, he was theorized to actually put his head onto the piano so he can hear in his later days what he was actually playing. Again, it turns out that the bone of the skull is a really good conductor of sound. You know, when you go to the dentist and they're drilling on your teeth, it's like an earthquake. Yeah. Well, because sound is being transferred directly, bypassing the ear canal, middle ear bones, et cetera, directly to the inner ear. So you can exploit that with various types of hearing apparatuses that will do that for people who have what we call conductive hearing losses, not inner ear hearing losses, but hearing losses due to some type of, of obstruction of the ear canal or middle ear bones. So if you put your head on a piano and you play and you were to put an earplug and you would be able to hear it, mm -hmm. just like Edison was able to hear as he bit down on the wax cylinders because teeth are also a very good conductor of sound being directly embedded into the bone. But, um, but Beethoven, yeah, you know, some people think he had fixation of the middle ear bones, a condition called otosclerosis. Uh, another report thought he had some kind of weird autoimmune disorder that led to some kind of blockage of hearing. So we don't really know. Um, I, I don't think we're going to be exhuming his body anytime soon to figure that out. So, but it is certainly fun to speculate. How do we uh, determine different senses of providing an ability to hear or listen in different cultures? Because we've got symbols and signs. And I was meeting with my rabbi the other day and she's a wonderfully intelligent lady she happens to be married to one of the only people on the planet who knows cuneiform fluently can you believe it like the original language was based upon the calculations of what agriculture was actually had to be counted when they were formulating the numbers so it obviously had an impact on how we were hearing numbers before we started to hear sounds like words which is fascinating and i'm just wondering on the international scale larry where in fact uh, is there any differences in different cultures and whether you've you've ventured into that area because we only hear what we want to hear and if you're growing up in a very prejudiced biased culture imagine you're growing up in iran you can only here, never mind speaking, what you're ordered. So you've got this authoritative built-in plug into our mm -hmm. hearing, haven't we? Which is so the uh, the the great neurologist Oliver Sacks wrote a book called Seeing Voices, and uh, he's a brilliant writer. Um, uh, he was a brilliant neurologist, but this particular book talks about sort of the origins of sign language and and the deaf culture. And one of the things he talks about in this book, and it is relevant to this, is about uh, someone who had had grown up without sign language and then subsequently developed sign language, right, right around, I think it was the mid-1800s. And later on, he was able to relate his experiences before he had language. And what he said was that he didn't understand the concept of time the same way he understood it after he developed the language. And I, I, I've always thought about that. And if you think about it, language is is a structure. It's like it's it's like these the 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 bones of your house. And what you put into that house may change, but the language that you learn is like the architecture that you fill in. And I and I think that I think that the development of language really shapes how you think about things in the world. That's a lovely way of putting it. The architectural um, part. Yeah, and different languages must somehow impart a maybe not a major difference but maybe subtle differences in the way we perceive the world 
Uh, and that may explain some of the differences. I mean, there are other obvious differences, like, for example, the Chinese language, right? The, it's, uh, you know, there's a, sometimes the, the intonation is critical. If, you, you know, you start low and go high, it's a different meaning with the exact same, you know, uh, vowels and consonants, whereas if you start high and then come low. Um, that becomes an issue when we're doing things like trying to program cochlear implants. Are we imparting that information that's important for that particular language? So um, it's a good question. I don't have a great answer for it, but I, I absolutely think that that the, that the language that we learn when we grow up does somehow shape our perception of the world. Yes. Talking about I, culture. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Julian. I remember having a conversation with my son. He must be about 10 years old, and we were talking about science fiction movies and stories and i said to him look if 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 there was an aid or somewhere where there was a person who wasn't from this planet because i'm often talking to astrophysicists and all different kinds of scientists but you had a visual image but the noise wasn't the language that you learn when you grow up you go to learn it you practice in school you practice in occupations when you get a job but if you didn't know any of that kind of stuff what would you actually be able to perceive? And my son said, and he's 11 years old, he said, sound waves. And I think it's very interesting when you perceive what you were speaking of at the beginning, Larry, how, how sound waves are architecturally transferred into the machinery that we've got going on what's going on outside and what's going on inside. Almost as if we've got, there are two dialogues. There's the one inside our heads. And then there's the one that's going on outside of our heads. I call that the background inner conversation. Then you've got the external conversation. They don't always, they're not always meeting on the same playing field, are they, Larry? No, no definitely not. I mean, and you think about sound waves, right? That's one very tiny little chunk of the spectrum of energy, right? You've got, you know, you got low, you know, uh, infrared all the way, you know, think of, you know, light frequencies, sound frequencies. There's, there. I mean, this is just a tiny sliver of the entire spectrum of energy that's out in the universe. And we're exploiting just this tiny little bit of it that it's uh, the likelihood that some alien terrestrial species is going to have the exact same you know, uh, frequency spectrum that we use is pretty unlikely. Yeah, you know, I'm in... a site because you're not just a clinician, Larry. You're also a scientist, which has always attracted me, not because I had any interest in going to another particular place to get treatment, but it's your scientific uh, conglomeration with the medical practice side of your skill, isn't it? Yeah. Before I answer, I, Jordan, did you want to? Uh, chime in with something. I just want yeah, to... no, thank you. I just, it's uh, not that important, but I wanted to bring it back to culture and the Western culture in the U.S. Particularly, the the noise factor, noise pollution, cacophony, crowds, and let's talk about rock concerts today. Not the Beatles, but today, and the enormity of of stress on the human ears. I mean, I'm wearing headphones. I've been wearing them all my life, and I'm very careful about how turning up the volume. Um, this is just a question based on what we talked about earlier. Is there a is there a, a crisis in, in unfolding, particularly with young people who are just blasting their their eardrums out? Well, I, I can talk for 
for hours on this subject alone because it's a critical part of what I do every day when I see patients. But um, uh, the short answer is probably. I, I'm not sure we'd call it a crisis yet. Um, but you know, back you know the '60s era, you know they had they had loud music and their parents complained. During my generation, we had Walkmans, right, and we turned those up too loud. Uh, then it was iPods. Uh, now it's earbuds. Um, and, you know, the concerts are louder and louder. So there, there's no question. There's no question that sound is integral and, and noise exposure is integral to everything that we do. Right. Power tools, um, you know, uh, military exposure. There's a lot of dangerous sound out there. So and it, th there was a study done about a decade ago and they looked at sort of hearing patterns in teenagers compared to a study that had been about 20 years prior. And there was definitely an uptick that these authors identified where there's increased hearing loss in teens. Um, no one, you, you can't prove what it is, but if you just look at the amount of noise exposed in the world that, that kids are exposed to in the world, it's likely that it has at least something to do with it. Um, so it's an issue. Um, but you know, you try to tell a kid to turn down the music um, or you try to tell them to put in earplugs at a party, you know, they're going to look at you with the hairy eyeball, just like our parents did to us. <laughs> yeah, right. so. How much concern, Larry, that one of the biggest, biggest headlines these days is social media. Now, of course, it's not just a visual propagation. Of course, it's a sound contribution, especially when it comes to bullying. I was watching, I don't know if you saw the, uh, the, 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 Zuckerbergs and the people from the social media platforms interacted with the uh, Congress members. And of course, I don't think people have delved deep enough into realizing the damage when you're thinking about bullying and people's behavior on an interactive level. Because if there wasn't sound or we didn't capitalize on how we've learned how to hear in different segregated parts of society, you've got a big bull in a china shop, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's um, knives can be used for good. They can be scalpels to treat people. They can cut your food and they can also hurt people. I, I think social media is the same thing, right? Social media has got some good. It brings people together. Uh, it allows like-minded people to get together, but there's there's no question that there's a lot of bad. now. We have regulations for a lot of the dangerous weapons in the world, but right now we have almost no regulations for social media. I think we're in the earliest stages of understanding um, what the benefits are and what the harms are. Um, unfortunately, it always takes our laws a long time to catch up. Um, I think the our, our representatives are, are figuring this out and trying to figure out how to do this in a way that makes sense. Uh, personally, I can't stand social media and I'm never on, but my kids are on it all the time. And that, yeah, I... I I don't have a solution for that. Um, well, we've got things like the words freedom of speech. We do. On the table, haven't we? I don't think the founding fathers figured out the kind of skill and expertise that you've got, Larry, when it was the founding fathers trying to figure out one end of the spectrum, which is the freedom to say or whatever was said to, to the public. But how you perceive and the interpretation of this legal authoritative approach well i mean even our supreme court you know has said that uh, the, the freedom of speech has limits right you can't yell fire in a crowded movie house for example that's against the law uh you can't incite violence um 
So there are limits to free speech. Um, sadly, not all of our, um, not, not everybody follows those rules, it seems, uh, or figures out a way to sort of skirt the rules. It's, um, it, it's a problem. Um, where's, where's the line or where's the gray zone? You know, clearly there's clearly things outside what's acceptable, clearly things inside what's acceptable, but that gray bar seems to be getting broader and broader. I'd like to just double back one more time and talk about the import of language and hearing. It's, it's obviously they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And I was visiting with someone on a recent trip to Florida who has a grandson whose father, the grandson's father is Chinese American and the mom is American American. And uh, the child at uh, less than two, he's about a year and a half, is learning both Chinese and English. If you had asked any of us at our age to learn Chinese, it would be quite an undertaking, but because he's a youngster and they, they adapt so well to language. Just share with us a little bit about the, and this is right up Julian's aisle, of course, the connectedness between language and, and the ability to hear and why it's so important to preserve and protect one's hearing for just that reason. You need, la language comes in many forms, right? I mean, there's sign language right. and you don't need to hear for that. And sign language can be very expressive and express emotions and things. But if you're gonna le learn a verbal language, you need to be able to hear the the intonations, the, you know, the the where vowels are accentuated, where, where consonants stop. There's a lot of linguistics that goes into this. And um, it would be very difficult to learn a language without any hearing. Um, now, as I can tell you what happens as we age, right, we, we tend to lose our hearing. Everybody on this planet will lose a little bit of hearing as they age. The difference between all of us is the rate at which that loss occurs. And that rate is largely determined by genetics. So whatever genetic deck of cards you were dealt is going to determine how not only how quickly you lose your hearing, but how susceptible you are to things like noise trauma. Now, as we lose our hearing, we typically lose it in the high frequencies first. That's the classic age-related form of hearing loss. Noise trauma also preferentially injures the, the higher um, frequencies as well. So what happens when you have good low frequency and no high frequency hearing? You hear vowels fine. You can hear consonants very well. So if I said, if you were looking at me and you had no high frequencies and I said bat, chat, mat, rat, cat, and you weren't looking directly at my lips and seeing what I was saying, you would be hearing ah, 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 ah. But if I said the cat in the hat comes back, you know exactly what I've said because you've heard the rhyme a thousand times and your brain instantly filled in the blanks. So that's what's happening to people as they lose that high frequency hearing. They're they're hearing the low con they're hearing the low the vowels, they're missing the consonants, their brain is constantly trying to fill in the blanks. And um, by the time they figure out what's being said in real world conversation, maybe with some background noise. You know, now all of a sudden there are two words or even a, a sentence behind, and then they say, I can't hear you. So so having your hearing, even though you know a lot of people don't recognize that they that they're having some hearing issues, they just real they think that people aren't enunciating their words, they're not speaking clearly enough. So the language is critical, not only for learning new languages, but also trying to understand the things that are being said on a day-to-day -day basis. How much do we take for granted, Larry? about the aging procedure. Because I've decided, I'm 72 years old, I've decided to cut out the numbers. And I'm only as old according to how every part of my body feels. 
And part of my, that's why I developed the language for leading, because I'm realizing that I'm only able to perceive and then through language communicate things according to uh, what I call the non-linear relationship, because we're born with a linear sort of disposition, aren't we? You get what you're born with. And I'm realizing maybe we've got the wrong end of the stick, but I'm just wondering about the aging. What is it that's actually aging when it comes down to the cells? You've got the brain cells, you've got the cells in the hair cells, and you know me, right? Luckily, uh, or fortunately, this acoustic neuroma that I've had for the last nine years hasn't deteriorated. But I'm wondering, is it the brain that deteriorates or what we've conventionally assumed that actually starts to age? Or is it other parts of the system? Because you know this is your whole centre of your work. You've got so many different pieces and they've all got cells that constitute the hearing system. But I'm just, because I wrote down, well, what's what's missing? I was like, what are we not addressing in your particular work on a scientific level and a clinical level? Well, I mean, I, I think we've got a pretty good handle of what's happening in the ear. We, you know, it, while it's hard to look at the inner ear uh, in living humans, uh, we can look at them after they've died. And there's lots of, um, archival temporal bones. Temporal, the temporal bone is the bone that houses the ear. And if you look at these, you can see that as we age, we have a loss of these critical cells called hair cells, in addition to some other things. But unlike a skin cell, if you lose it, it regrows. When our hair cells die, they don't regrow. I see. So the noise trauma that you accumulate, it, it accumulates hearing loss over time. Now you also do get nerve dieback. You get you get other abnormalities that go on in the ear. But really, it's the the end result. If you lose that nerve, if you if you lose the hair cell, you've lost hearing at that particular point of the uh, uh, of the cochlea. There are many efforts around the world to try to regenerate those hair cells. We we had a gene therapy trial a number of years ago, um, sponsored by Novartis, that we tried to actually uh, regrow the hair cells using the signals that are used to create new hair cells and, and that didn't seem to work very well there's another company based in boston they had a small molecule they developed that would cause what are called supporting cells to become hair cells um and that didn't work so we're, we're sort of back in, in in the at the drawing board trying to figure out what's needed to get these hair cells to regrow and maybe there's a reason why mother nature had them not regrow <laughs> Uh, we don't know. I mean, may, maybe maybe if we get them to regrow, we'll cause problems in the ear. You know, I guess. But we we can do it. We can. It happens naturally in birds. We can make it happen in animals. But translating that to humans becomes a, it's a big it's it's a challenge. Yeah, because you probably may remember me saying that the, the the deterioration of my hair cells may have happened when I went to a rock concert and I took my daughter to Madison Square Gardens and we watched Usher. And it was the loudest thing I think I've ever heard in my bloody life. My yeah, you could have stayed home at, at the time of the Super Bowl and watched it at the halftime. You, uh, you know, I, this is a, not a fun question, but it's a routine question because I have a dad who's in his 90s and he is quite quite deaf at this point. He He's had hearing loss. But like so many people in their later years, 
he has hearing aids. He doesn't like to wear them. He puts them aside. He puts them in the in the drawer. And they're just curious about the evolution of technology and hearing aids. And if we're getting to the point where a lot of older people are not going to do that, they're going to love their hearing aids. Where do we stand? Um, well, number one, hearing aid technology is getting better and better all the time. The number two, the introduction of the over-the-counter hearing aids um, that are for people with mild to moderate hearing loss, and you don't need a doctor's prescription for that. I think will also sort of turbocharge the whole field, uh, bring costs down. Um, but you know, the, the so there's a bunch of reasons why people may not like to wear hearing aids, and in fact, there's good studies that show about only one in six people who are eligible for a hearing aid will actually use them. Um, number one, there's the people just don't want to people don't want to wear anything in their ears. They don't like the feel of something blocking their ear canals. There's the stigma, right? People wear glasses all the time, and that's not a stigma. But for some reason, wearing hearing aids carries a stigma with it, and there's some historical reasons for that. But I, I think the most important reason, and if they worked great, it wouldn't be an issue. But you know, it, it's not like wearing glasses because for uh, wearing glasses, you have a corrective phenomena for the most part. And if you just re-refract the the, the 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 light waves coming in, hit the retina in the right proportion, your retina being normal can then process that sound. Well, with, with most forms of hearing loss, then we're talking about inner ear or sensory neural hearing loss, not blockage type of hearing loss like wax or fluid in the middle ear, where the inner ear works okay. If the inner ear is not working and you're blasting sound to the inner ear, it's, it still has a problem with sound processing. So hearing aids aren't perfect. They're better than nothing, but, but simply blasting sound in there may not improve the word clarity. Makes sense. Um, hearing aids make things louder. They don't make things any clearer. And if your problem is word clarity, hearing aids are not gonna be a great solution for you. The only solution we have in that situation are cochlear implants. Cochlear implants will improve word clarity, but the cost of that is gonna be this a surgery to put the implant in, number one. And number two, um, your hearing is going to have to be pretty pretty bad to begin with for us to even want to do that because you're, you're likely going to lose the residual hearing, even though we try to preserve residual hearing. There's a high chance you can lose the residual hearing. And it sounds funny, and there's, a, there's a, an adjustment process to it. Yeah. But if you've got no hearing in the ear, an implant's a great option. But compared to what we have now, no one with good hearing would trade what they have for what the hearing is with an implant. I tend to look at the body and the brain like uh, um, an automobile. You know, the, the software is the, the modern day technology and electronics and the gas that keeps the internal combustion going. But would you say that the inner ear is like the engine under the hood? It's like the internal combustion part? Without that, you don't have anything, is that right? Yeah, to some degree, uh, I think that yeah, it's it's an imperfect analogy, but but roughly okay. I mean, the, the, there's different points that we can intervene to try to recreate hearing, right? So if it's a block, let's say you've got a blockage in the ear canal, I can remove the blockage. Let's say you've got a problem of the middle ear, I can usually fix those kinds of problems surgically. Um, if it's an inner ear, we used to not be able to fix it; we'd just be able to give them hearing aids. But now with implants, we can do that. But what what if it's a brain problem? Right. Sometimes the inner ear is working okay, but you've got a, a condition called, say, auditory neuropathy or auditory desynchrony, and the brain's just not processing that signal correctly. 
that becomes a different kind of problem. So, and we don't really have a great solution for that. Sometimes we do try cochlear implants and it seemed to work okay, because it turns out that the, the way the nerves are being signals got scrambled at the, at the location of the inner ear. But sometimes the problem is beyond that. Let's say you have a tumor on the hearing nerve, right? Um, fixing an ear problem is not gonna help that because the sound still can't get past that tumor. Where does trauma have a big role in this? Because trauma comes in so many different shapes and sizes and experiences from, like they used to call it in the First World War, shell shock, didn't they? Yeah. And of course it then advanced into PTSD and many other different interpretations. But is there any kind of commonality that represents the underlying factor when it comes to trauma? Or is it still in sort of a little bit or a lot in no man's land when it affects the hearing, let's say? Because I've well, met a lot of people who've suffered hearing loss because of trauma. Yeah, I think it depends on the nature of the trauma, right? Let's just, if you're a soldier, right? Let's say you've been exposed to an IED and not only do you have hearing loss, but you also have tinnitus. Um, and maybe some PTSD, right? Now, every time you hear that tinnitus, it's a reminder of the trauma you experience. So it's a, it's a, it's an auditory reminder every day, nonstop, 24 seven of that, of, of that trauma that you experience, the emotional trauma. So that, that can get wrapped up. You know, we can get airbag deployment in a car, actually. It's, it's like an explosion inside your car if the windows are all the way up. I've seen that cause hearing loss, you know, a slap on the ear can cause inner ear trauma. Um, if it's really severe trauma, you can actually get fracture of the middle ear bones and and uh, and things like that. Um, so there's there's a lot of different ways that trauma can cause hearing loss. So I think it really depends on the specific the specific mechanism of injury. Are you born with a certain amount of protection as a youngster, and does that protection deteriorate as you age? Or have we still got those same sort of protective barriers throughout life and suddenly age just becomes an unknown feature? Because I hear people who are 105 years old and they've got very sound hearing. And then I can hear people who are in their 50s and they've had all kinds of trauma. I'm wondering where the mix is in that whole thing. So, um, the, you know, the, the, the one mechanism that most of us have to help protect hearing is the, these little tiny muscles in the middle ear. Um, and when really loud sound comes in, they can contract and sort of stiffen the chain. So it, it, it makes it harder for sound waves to move through the middle ear bones. Um, that kicks in after a, you know, a microsecond or so. But uh, so if you've got an explosion, that may not kick in in time. Really, Honestly, for the most part, it's genetics. The same sort of genetic mechanisms that lead to a more accelerated age-related hearing loss probably make you more sensitive to noise trauma. And the flip side of that, there's a whole emerging um, uh, uh, science called synaptopathy where um, you can have low, le low levels of sound that cause a temporary hearing loss. So for example, you know when you go to a concert and you walk out and your ears feel real muffled? Absolutely. Three days later, your ears feel clear. So if I were to measure your hearing during that time you had the muffling sensation, I could measure a drop in your hearing, but then it recovers. So we call that a temporary shift in your hearing or a temporary threshold shift. It, we used to think that people dodged a bullet when they had that kind of noise exposure. 
But now we know from very clearly from animal studies, and we are big animals, so it likely applies to us too, that you do actually develop a very specific kind of injury to the synapses of the nerves onto the hair cells. And as those accumulate over time, it somehow makes the ear more susceptible to age-related hearing loss over time. And for example, if you take if you take animals, expose them to that low level of noise, those animals will have a much more rapid age-related hearing loss than those animals that weren't exposed. So there is something even in those lower level noise exposures that will that will make you more susceptible to hearing loss as you age. Before my daughter was born, she's now 32 years old, and you've heard me mention her. She's a, a real top uh, uh, person in the, in the nutritional section. She runs the children's nutritional section at Cornell Wild at Columbia. She got her master's club. The reason I'm bringing her up, because before she was born, my wife and I studied under a, a neuroscientist called Dr. Glenn Doman. Dr. Glenn Doman researched tribes all over the world in 125 different countries because he wanted to see how the aging process in the earliest years of childhood actually do not continue after the age of six as far as their learning capacity. I'm wondering whether there's a restriction similar to our hearing as far as, because we we did all the work of Dr. Glenn Doman, you see, and um, my daughter turned out to be a very smart lady. I'm wondering whether her hearing was sort of over-sensitive of, of what was being presented to her because we learned everything that Dr. Glenn Doman could actually show us. He's still got the organization. He's passed away. It's called the Institute for the Achievement of Human Potential. It's outside Philadelphia. It was nicknamed the Better Baby Institute hmm. uh, many years ago. Maybe you remember it at all, Larry, do you? I, I remember the name. Yeah. So you know, th there is a concept you know, called the critical period in neurodevelopment that you have to achieve a certain sense by a, a particular time point. Uh, and beyond that time point, you'll never develop it. And uh, the, the the two neuroscientists who developed this were Hubel and Weisel. And they did it by, by, by um, in, in cats, they were able to show that if they didn't develop binocular vision by a certain age, they'd never get it. Now, the, uh, the critical period in hearing is a little bit broader and less well-defined, but it exists. And we know this very clearly because if you, let's say you take a child who's born deaf, if we put a cochlear implant in that child before the age of 18 months to two years, with appropriate um, help, they can achieve normal speech and language milestones by the time they're five to six. Now, if you waited till that kid's six or seven to get an implant, they, they'll always be behind their hearing peers, but they'll develop, you know, they'll develop speech and language. But if you wait till they're 10 or 11, they may never get what we call open set speech or the ability to understand speech without lip reading. So there is definitely a critical period of having to do some type of intervention to allow someone, in my case, in, in, in the field I study hearing, beyond which they'll never develop the ability to understand speech without lip reading. Do you think that learning period that I learned from Dr. Glenn Dermott the first six years, and he went to 125 countries, so he, he actually won the Oscar for the documentary, I'm just wet because we sort of saturated my daughter with classical music from the age that she was born. I used to read her the Wall Street Journal at the ages of 18 months and even earlier than that. And we got books and all kinds of instruments. And I thought that would have a, it's obviously been a reality because of the way she's turned out. 
But I think that kind of exposure by listening at that acute level, I'm just wondering whether that sort of level of, of intense perception, not just by her listening to me reading her books and reading her books, had it, could that be reproduced at the level of when you've got older patients? I'm just wondering. Well, I mean, I don't know the answer to that. You know, there, there's this, there's the statement you can't keep teach an old dog a new trick, right? Um, the, I think that what we do to our kids in terms of maximizing the kinds of things they're exposed to is great. At the end of the day, everybody's different, and they're going to learn at different paces and, and different rates and and uh, different and the tons of control over our kids. I think we're more like, you know, tanker captains. We we make a turn and a mile later, maybe the ship turns if we're lucky. <laughs> so, um, you know, being a parent myself and knowing that a lot of what I've done. <laughs> I call it the Titanic. In, but, you know. If you remember the movie, the Titanic, it was when there were, it was a calm water. If you remember the movie, right? Yeah. And it was only when they saw the iceberg that they try and figure out whether the ship was designed to actually steer the wrong way because people have said, well, no, if the Titanic had stayed in a direct line and hit mm. the damn iceberg head on, then who knows that the story may have been a different story. But I'm just wondering how these laws of perception and the listening, when you watch in the movie, those two sailors in the, the crow's nest were shouting iceberg. As soon as they started to shout, it was too bloody late, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. Interesting. Julian? No, I just want to thank you so much, Larry. And what what I think would be good, rather like I mentioned to you on the phone, this is sort of a first phase of creating mm -hmm. a context mm -hmm. around such an important topic. And you're a master of that particular area. The next phase, what we're starting to do is look at an actual activity or an event mm -hmm. in the context of hearing loss and the skill you've got. Because then the third phase, as I was listening to Christopher Nolan, who made the uh, Oppenheimer movie, I think he's an absolute genius, he uttered the same thing. It, it's after you get people sort of on the edge of their seat that they start to provoke questions. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of like the third phase. So um, I'm so grateful for you being able to attend this, Larry. You're, you're such a delight as well as a master of your, your skill. We've, we've talked far and wide on different yeah, topics. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. The conversation continues on the Language for Leading podcast with Julian Sturt, available on all podcast platforms. Remember to subscribe, download, rate, and review the show, and tell your friends and colleagues about it. The Language for Leading podcast, impactful conversation about fundamental principles that will grow your business and change your life for the better.